0: Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and his kingdom. God, illuminate your truth today. Illuminate your truth through Brady, God. Help us to hear what it is you're saying and give us courage to respond. In your name, amen. Happy New Year. And there was much rejoicing. What do you guys think about this section if I sit over here instead of over here? Any yeas or nays, I just want to be filled with sunshine. That is not my talk, that is some music. So everyone, my name is Brady. I am really happy to see many of you that I haven't seen in a while. My sight has been restored. Hey guys. Uh, Yeah, so I was thinking about something today, which is just that we are excited for all of you as we move into 2016, and when I say we, I mean all of us, those of us that are trying to carry this thing that's called Basilea, we are excited for what's going to happen this year. And I have no idea what it's going to be, but we are patiently waiting on God to do what that is and attentively waiting. This is the moment of the Robert Frost poem right now, which road do I take? I want to uh, I want to look at a text today that I did prepare this week, and uh, I hope that we can check it out together and dive into it together and see what we can come up with and let's, so let 's go to that it 's uh Matthew chapter thirteen. Verses 44 through 46. There are Bibles here, but it's only about three verses. And uh, we can just bring it back up. If you guys do want a Bible, um, I can give you one. Anybody want a Bible? Anybody want Okay. That was easy. So it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. In the text, we read two specific parables that Jesus often used together. I don't think that these parables say the exact same thing, but I think that they are related. Jesus may have said these things back to back as they are written, and he may not have. However, they are organized this way by the writer of Matthew, and because of this, I find it appropriate to see them work hand in hand. Let's look at the first parable. A man is working in the field that does not belong to him and finds a treasure that is hidden and hides it. Then, overwhelmed with joy, he sells all he has and buys the field, making both the field and the treasure his. We can surmise that the man that currently has the deed to the field does not know about the treasure. And the reason I say that reasonably is that he probably wouldn't have sold the field if he knew. Or he would have said, yeah, you can buy my field, but first let me get my treasure out. Then you can have it. There is also an option that he knew and he didn't care, Uh, which isn't likely, but uh, the entire story, the kind of context of the story is about the treasure and the field so I doubt he didn't care I think he probably didn't know but that's just my deductive reasoning and it's a really smooth move that's hard to say on the part of the buyer because he gets away with buying the field and now owns the secret treasure that's buried there there's kind of like an ethical conversation is this ethical I don't know but regardless he gets away with buying the field and now owns this hidden treasure for himself all right, we did a lot of standing today. I'm not gonna have you guys stand, though it's not really that big of a deal to stand up. Just <laughs> generally speaking, when everyone's like, can you please stand everyone's like, gosh, stand again. <laughs> it's really not that big of a deal. We stand most of the time, so. And in most of the world, sitting doesn't look anything like this. It actually looks like this because people don't have chairs. So let's just, you know, anyway, we're not gonna stand. That was <laughs> just uh... but I want everyone to close your eyes. If you're not comfortable closing your eyes, then you can go like this. (laughs) But really, everyone do it. And then I want you to picture this with me. You are the owner of a field. You are a farmer. You are working your land and you work hard. And every harvest, as hard as you work, the land only yields just enough crops to cover your bills, but no more. You are trapped because you are a farmer, and this is what you've got to do to provide for your family and to make ends meet and to keep the bank happy, but you are not happy. What if one day a man that sometimes works in your field excitedly wants to buy the field from you for a small fortune? What if he offered you more money than you had ever dreamed of? You are out of your mind with excitement, The money you will get in this deal greatly exceeds the price of the field and what it would produce if you worked very hard in it for all the rest of the days of your life. This joyful man buys the field from you. Picture him backing up three moving trucks full of money at your local bank and your bank manager smoking a cigarette and letting the staff know that they will have to work overtime on Saturday and Sunday to process the transaction. Imagine if later that night The man who bought the field came up to you and said, Hey, just want to let you know there's a great treasure hidden in your field, and I've always known about it. But I needed to purchase the field from you in order to lay claim to it. You had no idea it was there, but I had to have it. And I couldn't risk a measly offer. I had to liquidate all of my assets, because there was no way that I could let you say no to my offer. The reason I had to have your land was because the treasure in the field is worth incalculably more than what I paid for the field itself. Of course at this moment you are probably burning with anger or rage or at least great disappointment. You get that hot flash and then the cold sweat. You're in disbelief because you know that you got ripped off. You thought, what if I had just known? Then what if the man said this, I want you to come and share this treasure with me. It's yours, but I couldn't show it to you until you let, until you let me give up all I had to buy the field. Everyone can open their eyes. This parable is about our lives and the great worth that we have in the eyes of Christ. The parable of the treasure in the field is a detailed picture of Christ's initiation of his kingdom in us and our identity as his valued treasure. In fact, it is an explanation of the gospel in only a handful of words. Jesus lays it out like he always does in a handful of words and drops the mic. Here's what's so exciting about the story to me. The treasure buried in the field is you. The treasure buried in the field is you. The treasure buried in the field is you. Specifically, the treasure is the great value of your life that is previously unknown to you, but known only by Jesus and is uncovered by him. The treasure is you. How does that make you feel? I know it's intellectual, maybe at this point. I don't know if it's hit you guys at a gut level, but think about that. How does that make you feel to think that you're the treasure? The treasure is also me. We are his treasure. I had some help with this parable, but here's the breakdown. The man working in the field is Christ. He is not there by chance. He knows exactly what he's looking for. He is in the field to uncover something that is hidden, and that hidden thing is our value to him and in him. The field is the brokenness of our situation. It is our current state of our lives without Christ uncovering our value. If any of you guys saw The Matrix all those years ago, the field is like our lives before we take the red pill and before we see how deep the rabbit hole goes. Jesus and his purchase of our lives with his sacrifice is an unprecedented move toward us. And it is the initiation of his kingdom into our lives. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is the powerful and transformative rule and reign of God. We've been talking about it for what feels like years now as we've been in the book of Matthew since I graduated from high school. But in Philippians 2, it says that in obedience to the Father, Jesus me—Jesus gave up his place as God in order to buy us back from the kingdom of darkness in death on the cross. And he did this with infinite joy. Just like the man in the field, and the joy was for us, because he loved us. So his infinite joy in buying the field was because he saw us and he saw our great worth. This is the picture of what it means to be bought by Christ, to belong to him and understand what he did because you are worth it. Because we're worth it. You guys tracking with me on that one? These stories bleed into each other in the text, so let's look at the story of the pearl and see what it means to respond to Christ's initiation of the kingdom. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In the ancient world, pearls were valuable because crazy pearl divers would tie huge weights or rocks around themselves, hold their breath, say a prayer, and with the hopes to safely make it down into the sludge at the bottom of the sea. They didn't have goggles, they didn't have air tanks, they didn't have flippers, they didn't have flashlights. They had a hope of grabbing an oyster and also hope of making it again to the surface without their lungs exploding also hoping the, earl, the oyster would have a pearl and also hoping that it would be a fine pearl. So there's a lot of steps of risk here for the divers. The man in this parable is not a diver, but he is an expert with pearls. He's not a retail buyer like you and me, but a trader, a wholesaler. The text says that he is a merchant. It uses the word emporio, which I think is where, where we get our word emporium for like a vast quantity of different things that you can buy or sell. And this man spends all of his time looking at pearls, touching pearls, weighing pearls, and testing pearls to find only the best so that he can presumably resell them. In this story, he is seeking the best, and when he finds it, he liquidates his assets to buy this singular pearl of great value. It is unclear what he is going to do with the pearl. He could sell it, but that doesn't seem likely as he has just sold everything to buy it. But I imagine the dialogue going something like this. The guy gets out of his car, walks up to the house, says to his wife, babe, (laughs) clear out all the bank accounts. That was for you. Liquidate the kid's college fund, sell the house, sell the Prius, sell the dog, (laughs) ask your mom to pay us back for the Alaska cruise and check the couch cushions because I got to buy this thing. This is it. This pearl is the fulfillment of my purpose as a pearl merchant. This parable has been said to communicate the same thing as the treasure in the field, but it could also be redundant, redundant. And I find that when you say the word redundant, redundant, you need to say it twice for emphasis. (laughs) It'd be redundant, potentially. So for that reason today, let us consider that this parable could be our response to the kingdom after we see that Christ has bought us, after we know that we are his treasure, right? Because the first text happens, then we read the second text, the first text is telling us who we are in Christ, the second text is our response. Pearls and precious gems are often used as a metaphor to represent something beyond material, material wealth, which could be wisdom or knowledge or something else that is prized. You remember Jesus warning his disciples to not cast their pearls before the swine. That's about not giving up the things that are most valuable to people that don't know what to do with them. Because what, what's a pig going to do with a pearl, right? In this story, the merchant is meant to represent us as we are searching for pearls of value in our lives. We are constantly weighing out value. We are trying to make sense of life as we sift through philosophies, worldviews, political stances, economic success, social success, religious thoughts, religious practices, opinions, truths. It just goes on and on. Just imagine yourself in Times Square, if you've ever been to Times Square. If you haven't been to Times Square, imagine yourself in that video game Second Life and you go to Times Square. (laughs) And you just see people from all over the world walking by and every one of them has a unique story. And in a way, as we're looking for pearls, we're just trying to collect all these things from all these people. And we often like to have many options as we are pursuing these ideas of truth because we have found that being able to negotiate in lots of different types of pearls is beneficial. We will always have one that is good, a good fit for the current customer we're marketing to. So kind of exploring all religions and that type of attitude is 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 good because then I can always be like, oh yes, that reminds me of what Socrates said, or did you read the first Veda whenever Ramalangadanda did that thing? That is not the name of a, of a god, but that sounds like um, Hindi to me. That is, we may like to engage and search and retain lots of different philosophies and worldviews because we want to be able to hedge our bets and make sure that we can be a man or woman for all seasons. We want to put our chips all around the table, put some on red, put some on black, put some on blue, even though there isn't a blue. We want to put some on odd numbers and even numbers. We've just got them kind of spread around because if we hedge our bets and we hedge our bets socially, we can stay open and we can be someone that's considered to be open-minded and kind of of the times and modern. Um, And we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to offend our families, our parents, our children, our friends, our clients, and our neighbors with the kingdom of God. I don't really even want to offend the person I am sitting next to for five hours on the flight from L.A. to New York. I don't really even want to offend anyone in this room. About a week ago, I found myself pre-apologizing to some new friends that I had just met because I wanted them to know that I would be praying for them and that I am a Christian. So I apologized to them in advance because I thought they would be offended by the kingdom and that they would see me as foolish. I hedge my bets because oftentimes I am embarrassed about the kingdom. I hedge my bets so that I can fit in I seek and search and hold on to all these different pearls. Of course, this makes me wonder if I've ever come in contact with the kingdom at all, the pearl of great price, or if it's just been a counterfeit thing for me. I also find that the counterfeit thing kind of rattles around in my brain and I ask myself, Am I also hedging my bets because I don't really know what is going to happen in the life after this one? And, you know, many of us, at least me, grew up in the church, and we were encouraged to get saved or make a decision for Jesus when we were little kids. However, as we got older, a lot of what we learned as kids really gets called onto the carpet, and we have to now sort through all of it again and see if any of it holds water. And it has to work beyond the emotionalism of the moment that we might have been embracing when we experienced it for the first time, or our family history. It has to hold up because it holds up. Because now we're adults. I mean, when we die, does anyone really know what happens? I mean, I have hope that putting all of my eggs in the Jesus basket will be the right bet, but I cannot really be sure. Pardon the Easter analogy, I know it's early. But we have to wrestle this stuff out. I have a strong feeling that the merchant finding the pearl of great value is a metaphor for what it means for us to come into contact with the true message, demonstration, beauty and love of the kingdom of God, which is transformative in nature. Meaning, if we find his kingdom, Jesus says we can let go of seeking everything else. All of the lesser pearls lose their luster and worth. Again, what is the kingdom? It is the powerful and transformative rule and reign of God. And I want us to be people of the kingdom. I want to be a person of the kingdom. But you know what I say about the kingdom is it's like a duck. And yes, I recognize my metaphors are a little less developed. But you know what they say about ducks, right? What do they say about ducks, anyone? Yeah, if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. The kingdom's the same way. If it is here, we will know it because we will be shown by what happens. I even think about the passage when Jesus says, hey, if someone's like, there it is. Hey, it's over there. It's happening. You know, if it's not happening, it's not happening. He says there'll be evidence. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about seeking signs and wonders or looking for gold dust or sensationalism or emotionalism. I'm talking about A full understanding of the proclamation, as well as the demonstration of God's kingdom as we partner with Jesus in renewing all things. If the kingdom is here, then people are being set free from addiction and sickness and hate. If the kingdom is here, then people are healed of their old faulty visions of themselves and unchained from their broken family dynamics and history. If the kingdom is here, then we will be prying our fingers off of our stuff and spending ourselves in order to feed and clothe the poor. If the kingdom is here, then we are asking questions about how we should live that we might not have ever asked before. If we can look around and see these things happening, then there is some proof that the things Jesus said about himself are true. And we have evidence that his kingdom is real and that he is good. If it looks like a duck. When the kingdom is true, then things happen that bear witness to the words and deeds of Christ. These things show that God is at work in our lives. This evidence shows that the afterlife will be worth living with Christ. And this is beyond maybe something we experienced when we were kids something that we're holding on to from a different time, but it'll hold up. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Look at that. (laughs) Nah, I'll just grab this. Sorry. Thanks, Satosh. Wow, I feel like I'm in a Groucho Marx film now. Duck? Soup? Oh. if this life is currently worth living, then the life after with Christ will also be worth it. So I think about these things, about signs and wonders. I think about people being healed. I think about people's lives being radically changed and transformed. And it happens so that we can understand who Jesus really is, so we can receive the benefit of those things, and also so that We can understand that what he says about himself is true. These things bear witness to who he is. Seeking the pearl does not make sense unless we seek it in light of what Jesus has done. We cannot earn our place as the valued treasure. We can't do a bunch of great stuff and say it's the kingdom. We also just can't talk about the kingdom and never do anything. For example, social good versus Christian escapism. That's pretty random, but this is what I mean. You've got an organization, and you know it's all good if you're all about this organization. PETA, for example, saving the animals of the world but they have nothing to do with the gospel. They're all about saving the world, but they have no acknowledgement of the gospel. Then you have Christian escapism, which I would call like fire insurance or like, you know, whatever, looking to the life beyond, kind of like it's all going to burn, so who cares? And they're all about the words of Jesus and things being read, but they don't care about the world. They're just... Two people doing extreme things and we can just talk about the kingdom and never do anything or we can just do great stuff and never talk about the kingdom, but neither one of them work. The merchant in this parable is us and he gave it all up because he found something that had more value than everything he was able to throw at it. This is the same posture as the man in the field had. In the agricultural story, the owner of the field got the deal of a lifetime. In the second story, the merchant is the one that underpaid for the pearl and also gets the best deal because the pearl itself is priceless. As we follow the example of Jesus, as he gave up everything, we also are asked to give up everything in response to his real, very transformative kingdom. And the verse that came to mind is, we love because God first loved us. We can move toward Christ without hedging our bets because we can do so in response to the movement that he's made toward us. I want to read this. quote, I think I'm over on my time, but um, this is from St. Martin Luther King, Jr., and I don't know if he's really a saint, but in my estimation, he's a saint. It says, I have seen too much hate to want to hate myself, and every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day, we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience, And we will win you in the process. The victory will be a double victory. That's the kingdom. So God, we just ask that your kingdom would come.